Nice to have you with us this Sunday morning, the last one in August. Our first guest is a professor who teaches teachers. Jennifer Davis is an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Education at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Professor Davis, Jennifer, good morning, and thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Our guest wrote a piece at theconversation.com recently entitled COVID-19 and Schools Reopening. Now is the time to embrace outdoor education. Jennifer, it's an interesting concept. I question your timing only because while well, here in Vancouver, and I don't imagine it's terribly different in, in Ontario, there's a, a whole group of parents who at this very moment remain utterly undecided as to what they're going to do with their kids in a couple of weeks. What's the buzz in your part of the world? Yes, I think it's very much the same here, Sterling. Um, people are, are really unsure. Part of that's because the boards are still unsure. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't think parents know exactly what kind of situation they're going to be putting their children into. Well, and here in Vancouver, for example, um, the most recent twist to the plot is the local school board uh, coming through with that other option of the home, the transition home learning model that will allow the student to transition to a classroom environment when the child is ready, or I guess equally when mom and dad are ready to send the child, because many of them aren't, and yet they don't want to miss anything. So the the yeah. the conundrum right now is how to keep up and. And keep healthy. Yes, exactly. Uh, but children can be outside while they're home uh-huh. as well. Now, now, now they can. Um, and there's just there's so much that could be taught outside. Uh, even the same uh, the same curriculum. Uh, there's many ways to take children outside, and one of them is just simply to do what you're going to do in the classroom. And, and do it outside. Well, you know, it's interesting because here we are trying to re, uh, revitalize a hospitality industry, Jennifer, and so far the best we can do is hit a patio for lunch. The notion of going inside a restaurant right now is, is frightening for a lot of people, but the halfway point is the patio. So there you are, you're enjoying the restaurant experience, and you are, as you feel psychologically particularly, much safer outdoors. So as you propose... Yeah outdoor education, embracing outdoor education, Jennifer Davis. It's important to remember, at least for the first part of the school year, uh, it's it's a much safer environment all around, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, and not, not only is it safer, but while we're out there, uh, we're building a relationship uh, with the earth, uh, with the sky, and we're taking away uh, that idea that we seem to have developed over time uh, that being outside is dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, we, when, um, when teachers want to take children outside, it's very often called a field trip. Yep. And there's, as all parents, I don't know if you're a parent, but if I am. you are, you know, well, then you know that um, the whole idea of taking children outside is accompanied by many, many forms and oh, papers yes. and... On on the forums, the teachers have to list the dangers of being outside. Yeah, um, and this is a chance to 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 really do this. 
Well, it's interesting because you're quite right, Jennifer. When when the parent is confronted with the possibility of a field trip, it is always and I appreciate there are legal liability issues, and the school board's legal department is insisting on all of this stuff. I get all that, but the pitch to the parents is, well, how about placing your kid in some kind of unnecessary high risk environment for a day? Yes. Sign here. Yes. And yes. That, it's not exactly very encouraging, is it? No, it's not. And and yet the land is our home and and we need to, to get to know our home and children need to feel um comfortable in in their home and on their home. Indigenous people uh would tell us that the land is our first teacher. Um and there's a lot of a, a lot of information to impact unpack in that statement but to be comfortable there and and to learn about all the other creatures that we share this land with and not only that but um to learn that that we can grow our own food um that to learn how to catch a fish all kinds of things Mm -hmm. and all of that can be connected to curriculum it's not that you have to put curriculum aside to to, to learn those things uh, that can all be connected. Jennifer, how did you come to this personally? I mean, it sounds like uh, you at one point or another were a lucky girl who was uh, uh, went to an elementary school somewhere where teachers were really keen on having the kids outdoors a lot, and this has stuck with you for a lifetime. Is it that easy? Is it that simple? <laughs> no, um... Uh, well, I, I did go to a school, actually, uh, when I, that's a long time ago, Sterling, when I was in elementary school. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. But this stuff sticks but, with you for a lifetime. It, it does. No, the biggest influence for me, uh, well, there have been several, but on my, when I was little, my biggest influence was my granddad's um, very small holding in the south of England. And... He, my my granddad, even though you know, well into his nineties, uh, always wanted to be outside. Um, he he taught me about being outside. Mm-hmm. That that uh, and, and he <laughs> he he taught me about you know birds and animals and all of those things. And then um, that stuck with me. Uh, we we came to Canada as as settlers. And um, I kept that in my mind that I always wanted to to, to know more. And fast forward to uh, once I was married and we had children and we bought our own small farm. And then parallel to that, uh, my husband's uh, family has roots um, in a, a small uh, indigenous community, Hiawatha, on the shores of Rice Lake, and I learned uh, much more from him and and from, as I say, his family has roots in that community. Um, Just always felt very much at home, outdoors. And from a practical standpoint, because here in BC, lots of people appreciate the notion of outdoors. We're kind of an outdoorsy bunch, I think, compared to the rest of the country. (laughs) Uh, But we also have weather realities. And here in Vancouver, we don't get real Canadian winter as as nasty, in as nasty a bundle every year as the rest of the country. We are the exception in that regard. However, the Mm -hmm. trade-off, the trade-off, Jennifer, is an awful (laughs) lot of rain. Rain, yes. 
And, and so even, and I have three born in BC kids uh, and they're moving on to families of their own now. And rain doesn't bother them much except, well, it's rain and it gets in the way. And I would see yeah. that being uh, an impediment. Mind you, we have things called tents and canopies and covers and so on that yeah. it, it, they can be worked around. But is the idea, how, how do you deal with uh, the notion of an outdoor curriculum, Jennifer, and the realities of Canadian weather during the school year? And, and that is a really big question, uh, and it has several answers. First of all, um, uh, countries that have weather much like ours, uh, Finland and uh, Norway, Sweden, mm-hmm. have outdoor schooling programs, and so we do have models to follow. Uh, in Canada, we also have our own outdoor schools. Uh, unfortunately, at this point in time, um, most of them require tuition payment because they're private schools, and right. so they're beyond the reach of, of many children. Uh, but apart from all of that, uh, we spent four years uh, in Thompson, Manitoba. I, I was at the University College of the North, and, uh, and my husband uh, taught um, in the a high uh, a cohort in the high school there, um, outdoor education, and he and his, uh, his the leader of that course, uh, JJ, their motto was: "There's no such thing as inappropriate weather. There's only inappropriate clothing." Okay. And so here in Thompson, Manitoba, uh, where in the winter time the weather often gets to minus fifty mm-hmm. for more than a couple of days, uh-huh. the uh, the students, the the teacher education students there. Um, designed lesson plans uh, for for students, even in that weather. Now, it obviously involves some investment by a school board because it, in order to have equity, we need to have all children able to be uh, equipped with the right clothing. Sure. But that's an investment that, that can be made. And and in your country, and, and, and Vancouver is so beautiful, and I understand that uh, people don't really, um, the rain doesn't, doesn't affect everybody the same way, just because it's such a beautiful place. But as you say, we can build shelters. Um, we, can, we can put up canopies. We can make arrangements so that children aren't getting cold and wet, uh, but they can still be watching the clouds, uh, learning from trees. They can still do all of the things that would be happening outdoors if we make some investment into those kinds of uh, of preparation. And clearly there will be days when it's just not going to be possible. Oh, yeah. And then you go to plan B, which is one, what we always have in Vancouver. No matter what, what event <laughs> you're planning, you have to have, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite some people. We're going to do this and we're going to do this. And then everyone says, and if it rains... Yeah, <laughs> you have to have a plan B. So one would one would assume if you're going to organize a pretty comprehensive outdoor learning model, regardless of which particular geographical location it's intended to go to, uh, there will be a plan B for those days that need a plan B. Absolutely, absolutely. And but wouldn't it be wonderful if that was exactly what we looked at the building as that the building was plan B? Mm-hmm. And not planning <laughs> that we put our investments into uh, taking 
children and and not only just children but you know it's teachers and staff um we're all healthier when we're outside mm. and particularly during covid time a pleasure to have jennifer davis as our first guest on this sunday morning professor davis is in the school of education at queen's university in kingston ontario and recently wrote a piece for theconversation.com that's where you can read it entitled covid19 and schools reopening now is the time to embrace outdoor education perhaps not this week jennifer from strictly from the point of view of organization there are so many and you we've, we've touched on this already but it, it bears repeating because it is such a degree of an issue of such high concern for so many parents right now a lot mm-hmm. of households really it's august the 30th today september what is it september 7th or 8th is the opening day of classes in many provinces and frankly a lot of people listening to us right now remain undecided as to whether their kids are going to go back or not yeah so let's let's talk about that let's talk about the notion of outdoor education as how it might be i mean you're right from the point of view of planning uh, and and recognizing as they did what now you mentioned in your article a pandemic that occurred a hundred years or so ago uh caused people to set up outdoor classrooms across the united states remind us of that story jennifer yeah, that's true. In the tuberculosis pandemic, outdoor classrooms were set up across the United States. Um, but they, they were also set up uh, in Toronto. Uh, Toronto has a high park forest school um, that was built in the early 1900s to teach uh, children with tuberculosis. Uh, now, that was, those were set up uh, with, with blackboards and uh, desks. They actually took the furniture outside. Oh, my. And, uh, yes, they did, um, and and put a canopy over for when it was raining. But that was because it was recognized that being outside, uh, the children with tuberculosis would also be happier, so and healthier. Uh, so there is there is precedent. This has been done before. Sure. Uh, and by the way, I, I don't imagine uh, that you. Uh, well, let me just ask: uh, uh, Did you, in the course of researching this paper and and doing the homework required, did you inquire of any medical professionals about what their thoughts would be, particularly in this uh, well turbulent time of trying to get Canadian kids back to school? What would the notion, or how would they, uh, uh, would their approval be of outdoor education? Well. Actually, that that's a very interesting um, that that was a very interesting uh, happenstance. That right when I was writing the article, uh, there was an advisory group from Sick Children's Hospital in Toronto, uh, made up of doctors and and other health uh, professionals, mm-hmm. who were advising that schools take their classrooms outside, that students be outside more. So that was just a very happy. Uh, coincidence that happened while I was writing this, but I did also speak to a number of health professionals who were all saying not just that children would be healthier outside, but that all of us would be healthier outside during COVID. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the requirement, of course, and there would be infrastructure investments, whether it's for uh, some kind of a layer or two of clothing that <laughs> that yeah. may work. I mean, we're, we're buying kids uh, laptops and iPads, uh, and they're not cheap either, and we're doing that on pretty much a, a national basis. So the, the, the notion of uh, uh, some expense required to adapt to some, uh, in some way 
to a new program isn't an alien notion to most Canadians. Do you see it as no. being an expensive uh, adjustment? Um, well, everything's relative, right? <laughs> so um, it's all the preparations that are being made in schools now are expensive. And as you say, uh, because uh, students are needing more technology, we're providing computers and, and other technical devices, yep. which that's good. Uh, I'm glad that we are. That's what equity is all about. Um, but the the expense of appropriate clothing, of canopies, of some kind of uh, structure for, as you say, whether when it's really inclement, um, those those expenses are going to be minimal compared to to the big expenses that school boards are facing to retrofit classrooms yeah. and to do all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. And here, of course, uh, retrofitting is an interesting choice of words because in this part of the country, retrofitting is a very, uh, very important priority, Jennifer, for many students in the Vancouver area, as, of course, we are on the rim of fire and we do mm. live in an earthquake zone and a considerable um, stacks of money have been d- devoted already to retrofitting fitting schools and that's a program that's going to be ongoing. I mentioned earlier before the news, later in the show this morning, we're going to talk to a group from Express Employment Professionals and they've uh, okay. uh, just recently published a white paper uh, out of their American head office, basically lamenting the fact that many graduates of today's post-secondary programs are uh, uh, in, in un- unskilled or let's say ill-prepared to meet the needs of the workforce. And they're suggesting that more consideration be given at the academic level to program selection and development that more uh, regularly intersects with the workforce in a positive way. Is there, I see, frankly, uh, I see uh, uh, those dots connectable. Learning outdoors and being ready to join the workforce. Somehow or another, I don't see that as being a difficult set of dots to connect. Do you? No. No, I absolutely don't. Uh, Because there are skills, personal skills, that uh, students learn when they're outdoors as, as well as skills that can be translated into the workforce. Um, you, when you're outdoors and you face inclement weather, you, you learn resilience, um, critical thinking. These are just all off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the need to collaborate. Um, the, even uh, these days, we have technology that we can use outdoors that that far surpasses anything that that people have had in the past mm. that, that adds to the whole experience um you know all the the gpsing that um that students can do and the 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 collaboration that they can the things that they can produce using technology but all of that can happen outdoors their creativity uh, and just their own sense of confidence Mm-hmm. in being in this world. Uh, all of those are skills that translate into the workforce. I know you've touched on this, and we've only got a couple of seconds left here, but I, I think this is an important point to end our conversation on. You've alluded to it already, Jennifer, and this the notion of not only learning all of these personal skills along with the academic exercise, but just in that outdoor environment, one cannot help 
but feel connected. And one of the major things that you you reinforce in the piece that you wrote for theconversation.com is this ability to connect with the food sources that we are that we consume are we spend a lifetime of eating food out of necessity and fun and and so few of us make the connection between where it comes from and the enjoyment of same yeah absolutely and then even if we make the connection of where it comes from and enjoying it the step even further is to grow it ourselves and know that we can we can grow it ourselves, and we can grow it for our neighbors, and we can share, uh, and we can choose that we'll grow this crop if they grow that crop, and then we'll share tomatoes for rutabagas or mm-hmm. you know peppers for beans. Um, all of that, that that knowing that that you can provide for yourself and for your community builds confidence. It's a wonderful connection. And isn't it quite impressive during this pandemic, and it's now measurable because we've been we've locked down or re- reacting to it for many months now, how many literally millions of Canadians, Jennifer, have discovered their green thumbs and are out there yes. just growing stuff this year, many of us for the first time. It is. It's just the seed houses are, are reporting um, a, just a banner year. That yeah. Some of them are actually saying they're, they're sold out, and I, I don't mean um, seed houses for you know acres of crops. I mean the seed houses for home gardens. Right. And I don't know how it is in Vancouver, but in Ontario, in this part of Ontario, you cannot buy pressure treated lumber at this point. Yes. Everybody's sold out of it because so many people have used it for outdoor uh, outdoor building, including raised beds um, and garden, all kinds of things. It's wonderful. Indeed it is. COVID-19 and schools reopening. Now is the time to embrace outdoor <laughs> education. The article is in its entirety at theconversation.com. The author, Professor Jennifer Davis from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Jennifer, thanks so much for doing this with us this morning. A pleasure to talk to you and uh, have a great school year. Yeah, and you too, Sterling. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Jennifer Davis in Kingston, Ontario. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. He is Brent Paulington, one of the owners at Express Employment Professionals. This is a group that has recently published a white paper entitled A Canadian Education Revolution, Aligning Classroom and Careers. It's all about fixing the growing gap between skills needed and skills that are being taught or perhaps not taught. Brent Paulington, good morning, and welcome back to the show, sir. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's good to have you back with us, Brent. Uh, we haven't Great. talked now for a few months. Uh, you're in the employment business. How is business this summer with so many people unemployed? Yeah, we, uh, you know, the first couple months after COVID hit, we saw a pretty drastic decrease in the number of jobs that were available through the clients we work with. Sure. Uh, however, over the last over the last two months uh, here in the summer, we've seen a significant pickup across the board with our other office partners as well uh, in Vancouver. Um, so definitely seeing some businesses trying to take whatever opportunity is available to them and trying to adapt to the current state of the market. So we're definitely seeing a a big uptick, which is great. And we're also seeing a, uh, uh, a pretty big uptake as well in the amount of people applying. Um, I think there's definitely some, um, 
you know, feeling amongst those who were relying on the CERB uh, for uh, for that employment benefit that they, they feel that it's going to be coming to an end. Yes. Uh, and so starting to get a lot more aggressive with their job search, knowing that uh, that, that resource isn't going to be available to them much longer. Yeah, I'm curious, Brent, too, because, you know, I, I've got a couple of questions before we get to the white paper and, and the real reason for the sure. call. It's just you and I haven't talked for a while, and you're such a good barometer yeah. of, of what's going on. For example, we know that hospitality and the food service industry is still really, really slow. How many people are you seeing who are from that industry who have looked at the forecasts which indicate a huge degree of failure going forward for many of these businesses? And now you're looking at people who, you know, I spent six, seven, eight years in the hospitality business and I don't think my future lies there. I'm going to start looking around for uh, other opportunities in which I can apply my accumulated skills in a different context. People looking to switch careers. Are you seeing a bit of that, Brent? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a great, great insight there. Uh, I mean, we're seeing some fantastic people that have reached out to us who, uh, you know, have been really successful in their careers in the industry and have been displaced. Yes. Um, And one of the big things that I look for um, and someone who helps employers hire is just people with great attitude, people with great aptitude, the ability to learn, who have had progression in their roles. And so we've actually had a lot of success uh, helping people transition. The challenge is, is if the role they've been in, uh, you know, hasn't provided them with an opportunity to transition those skills in a way that's going to provide a huge value to the company they're going to. Right. They're often having to start in very entry-level positions, taking massive pay decreases, uh, which is obviously a very difficult, uh, you know, scenario to wrap your head around. And so although there's lots of people that are looking, there's lots of people that are hoping that that's not a scenario that they're going to have to, um, you know, encounter. And then, of course, that kind of leads into this paper, which is about the education system reforming and how there are a number of people who want to be educated and change their career, but are not really seeing a, a, a you know, clearly defined path that's going to lead them to, you know, where they need to be. And what what sectors, given that we know what, what sectors aren't likely going to be hiring people for a while, the restaurant industry, uh, hotels, that kind of thing, what sectors, because you're talking about some uptick and a bit of a bounce back in some components of the economy, who's doing the hiring these days, Brent? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, for us, we, set, we serve uh, a number of different industries, but one where we continue to be very busy is not necessarily the frontline worker, but the kind of inexperienced, uh, whether it's it's construction companies, warehouse, manufacturing, production, uh, you know, trade-based uh, organizations. Like all those companies seem to be quite busy right now. And so we're seeing a lot of demand. And, and again, a lot of those companies have great growth opportunities. And that's also a, a you know, piece in the article where, um, you know, there are opportunities with those companies, but yeah, lots of, lots of companies where they are just in need of bodies, but also have lots of opportunities. If you have, uh, you know, if you have the aptitude to take on, learn and, and can adapt that there's lots of opportunities to become, uh, you know, in a management position. Um, but yeah, I mean, construction, manufacturing, production, uh-huh. uh, we're seeing all those companies that are having to, to, 
you know, meet the demands that are that are still out there in the market. Yeah, I'm curious too. You talk to you talk to people who hire. You talk to the HR people at a lot of these companies all the time. It's what you do for a living. I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of a negative question, but it's an important one to ask because it's very very much a part of the conversation these days. What are employers telling you about reluctant former employees who are choosing to stay on public assistance, i.e., the serve? rather than going back to work, particularly in a part-time capacity? Yeah, I think I think in those situations, a lot of the companies have, uh, I guess, had to adapt and had to look to hire in other ways. And I don't even know if, if there's someone who's been a long-term employee that stayed on serve for this long um, would have the ability to even come back in the role or may have to look at starting again. But I know that... Uh, um, there's definitely been a um, what's the right word, but I, I guess there's been an challenge from an HR perspective to kind of assess where companies are at, um, and I think the, the the big issue for a lot of HR companies or not HR companies but HR people mm. is if they're a larger company, um, looking at the return to work plans if they've if they've you know had to displace their workers. Uh, and are they going to be able to operate in the same capacity? We work with a couple large manufacturing and production companies where they have had to go to rotating shifts to keep their workforces totally separated, two 10-hour rotating shifts right. to ensure that if one uh, shift comes down with, with a, an illness that they still have the other to, to function, they've mm-hmm. had to reduce their workforce, they've had to change the way they do things. And so just trying to, uh, to to manage through that is still proving to be a challenge. It's a pleasure to welcome back Bren Pollington to the program. Mr. Pollington is an owner at Express Employment Professionals, a group uh, that has published a paper recently, a white paper entitled A Canadian Education Revolution, Aligning Classrooms and Careers. Brent, this conversation has been going on in Canada for decades, for literally for generations, as uh, each, each cohort going through the system has its turn at attempting to realign at least a few things with the real world. And uh, a lot of courses, uh, a lot of... uh, Well, let's talk about the numbers here. It's your survey. You tell us about uh, what the big findings were and what employers and particularly workers were saying about the findings, please. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that stood out to me is that um, 89% of the people that were surveyed believe that there should be uh, like a new approach to education and skills training and learning. Um, I mean, we see quite a bit in our office people coming through. We help a lot of unskilled people, uh, you know, find jobs. Sure. And I think from a company that helps the employer, one of the biggest things that we struggle with is an employer that will put their hand up and say, Brent, we need to help hiring somebody. This is the skilled position that we need help Uh, finding somebody for and we'll run a a comprehensive search and and approach and use all the different resources that are available to us and just won't come across anybody in the market that meets anywhere near the requirements or skills that the clients uh, trying to trying to identify and uh, is that simply a result of people's choices or do you think brent a lot of it has to do with the education system itself which tends to not uh, encourage or at least present trade schools and those sorts of skill learning possibilities as equal options to college or university degrees. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I mean, I know uh, one of the, the great things is there are a lot of skilled people currently working with a lot of these companies, which poses the challenge to them where they think that they can just find these people elsewhere. Yeah. Um, another challenge is the market is so competitive right now uh, that clients of ours have been known to pay uh, well above what is a reasonable market value to be able to find and hire somebody. Uh, which means that skilled workers being displaced from their current uh, organization and, and leaving, leaving a vacancy somewhere, and then it becomes uh, a kind of fear factor challenge for uh, companies to train somebody and make the significant investment in an employee when the average tenure uh, of an employee in Canada, I think, is about 2.5 years. And, you know, some of these, some of these roles take, you know, five years to, to really you know, if it's a trade role to get your, your seal. And so companies are investing in these employees and then they're leaving for a little bit of greener grass on the other side with a, you know, a little bit of a raise. Um, so it's, it's, it's disincentivizing the employer to invest in that training, uh, which then they're hoping the shift goes to the school. And yet we've obviously got the same issues you mentioned. We've talked about uh, um, where the schools are, you know, putting people through the, you know, the training they feel is appropriate. And yet when the people come out of it, they don't have the, you know, the real world training, so to speak, and aren't perceived as, as that high level value to the employer. Uh, and as such, they're willing to take these people and hire them, but not at the level um, of salary that the school system is portraying to them that they should be able to immediately garner coming out of the system. Um, and, and it's creating a big disconnect. Well, yeah, it's true because you, you because now you have a degree or a diploma of some kind. So that should honor. And, and, and more than once it has been that you've been told going through the system that once you get this diploma or degree, that will enable you to uh, approach the workforce with some credentials and the opportunity to start at level X because you've done all of this academic extra stuff. And then you go out into the real world and you find a job or an opportunity uh, and and they say, yeah, we'll give you a chance. We'll give you a shot. And, and the pay level is nowhere near what you've been led to believe you're worth. And it suddenly dawns on you, or maybe never, that you're not worth much to that prospective employer because despite you ha- the fact you have a degree, you have no experience in the field to offer and they pay experience more than anything else, don't they? Yeah, and you're loaded up with student debt and a lot of times they come out of the programs with that student debt expecting a certain range. And I think this is the toughest thing is that one of the best things you can do is just take an opportunity, get your foot in the door somewhere you know, demonstrate the behaviors that companies are looking for of a great employee, you know, learn on the job what that particular business does, take as much on as you can, you know, learn your role, become proficient at it, request for more uh, exposure to different aspects and, and, and grow with the company. Uh, but a lot of people are expecting just that they walk on and are paid, you know, fair market rate. The cost of living is high in Vancouver. Sure is. So the burden's on the employer uh, that, you know, if you're going to hire me, I need to be able to survive. And that's true, but the employer needs to get a return on their investment. You know, it costs thousands of thousands of dollars every week, hundreds of thousands of dollars for these companies to, to pay for these employees. At the end of the day, that only works if the company's profitable, is able to provide whatever service or product that they're providing to their customers in a profitable way. Um, and it's hard to do that when you have to invest in training and development and then even 
soft skills of, you know, dealing with employee, you know, conflict resolution or, or how to write an effective email. Sure. Or, like it just goes on the, 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 the lack of kind of skill that's, you know, required for somebody to get to the level that they need if they come straight from the program and don't have any real world, real world experience. Uh, the gap is huge. It's huge. Well, in this poll, as you mentioned already, 89%, that's basically nine out of every 10 people asked, uh, said basically, yes, there is a need to rejig the education system, making it a little more practically oriented in terms of outcomes for those who participate. Now, we've had this conversation, as says said before, Brent, many times in the last, say, 20, 30 years, and it always comes down to there's a consensus among people in the at the in the work workplace that adjustments are needed of course the adjustments need to take place at the academic level and one wonders how frequently these uh, polls and they're pretty pretty convincing in that they are so sizable and so obviously uh, the results are so clear uh, one wonders whether academia ever bothers to listen and read the out- uh, outcomes of these surveys because they don't appear to want to change too much yeah, yeah, and it's interesting too because I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I believe that they're all for-profit businesses, uh, and so I mean, people can start to to make those choices with their wallet. Um, I mean, I personally think that if someone you mentioned before, you know, they come out of school, they get their degree, they get the job. I think the big thing that they get out of it is an opportunity to be able to put themselves in front of an employer. Absolutely. Um, if you've got this education coming out of it and you, you submit your resume somewhere showing that you've got some relatable experience or education to that particular field helps you get your foot in the door to an interview. And a big disconnect are the soft skills of even being able to put a good resume together, uh, you know, whether it's post-secondary, even, even happening in the, uh, um, uh, in the secondary school system is, you know, effective resume writing and interview techniques, being able to, to conflict manage. But I think, again, like the, what I try to help people who are trying to enter the workforce understand is that, uh, you know, the opportunity is the greatest thing, whether it's a company that you're passionate about or not. If you can come across a great company that's looking to hire people and you can align with the values, maybe not necessarily the, the product itself. I mean, there's some great companies out there that, you know, clean portal potties and transfer those around. You may not be super passionate about that, but it could be a phenomenal company with great opportunities to grow and advance your career, opportunities to make make really, um, you know, lucrative salaries. Uh, but I mean, regardless of what the company is, if, if you're going down the route of a professional career and you've gone to school, uh, you know, that's one piece of getting your foot in the door. Do you bring real experience from another job somewhere else to the table through that? And if not, um, you know, then just because you've got that degree does not mean that you're going to be great at that job. Brent, how, uh, do pe- you've got how, the education. how do people get a hold Sorry. of you? Um, yeah, we've got our website. It's expressemploymentprofessionals.com uh, is the easiest place to go and see some information. Good stuff. Uh, it's got all the links to, to our contact info. Great stuff. Brent Paulington, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Terrific conversation this morning. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to welcome this guy to the airwaves of CKNW. He is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, who uh, wrote a piece in uh, the Financial Post the other day called, In the Tough Times Ahead, What is Trudeau Prepared to Cut? Aaron Woodrick joins us from Ottawa. Aaron, welcome back. Good morning. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Uh, you take a look at, in this piece you wrote a couple of days ago at the uh, the current federal deficit, which is a, a bit of a monster. But, Aaron, it's also a monster created out of necessity. And you don't argue too much with the, the, the needs that any government, whether it's a Trudeau government or the government of the day, had to respond to in terms of the pandemic crisis. Anyone, any government charged with managing a crisis would have done pretty much the same don't you think yeah i think so i mean i I don't take issue with it i know it's cliched to say at this point but the situation is unprecedented uh there was really no way to get around the fact a lot of money had to go out the door especially in the early days of this crisis when almost everything was shut down yep uh, I think the point of this piece really was to sort of turn our attention to the fact we, we've, we've spent a lot of money we didn't have. We're going to have to make some tough choices going forward. And as much as the government's going to continue to argue they need to spend more, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, what can we go without? What are the lowest priority things? And how can we save a little money so that in the long run, we can get back to a, a spot of more fiscal sanity? Okay, now that's not an entirely uh, odd position to take, given the fact that we've run up a debt tab so far, and I'm, I'm rounding things off uh, uh, on air, with, but around $350 billion and counting so far. But Aaron, the part that's making a lot of Canadians worried is this, this whole fall thing that's looming large. Trudeau has prorogued Parliament. He now has got Christian Freeland uh, doing his bidding in the finance ministry. And it's all about go big, uh, bring back big, a new green deal, spend, spend, spend is what it sounds like to me. And it sounds like an orgy of vote buying. What about you? Yeah, look, I'm not sure people uh, who, you know, numbers are, are that big. Uh, a lot of people figure, well, what's the difference? You know, $10 billion, $100 billion, a trillion, it's all a ton of money. To give people a sense of the, what, what the scale where we're at right now, we're spending about $2 for every $1 we take in. Uh, with a normal deficit, it's more like a dollar five, a dollar three for every dollar. This is a this is a huge scale of money that's going out the door, and it's a bit like saying, you know what, our business was hit with hard times. We had to borrow for six months. Maybe now's a good time to take out a couple more mortgages. It just seems like a very odd thing to say, having just borrowed because we had to. Uh, now making the argument that well, we borrowed so much, we may as well double down, and and the sky's the limit, and we'll just gamble that all this more borrowing will pay off in a way that'll solve all of our. Yeah, and I, I pulled this uh, the, these figures out of the Calgary Sun and an article there about Generation Screwed, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But this, quote, according to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, every hour of every day, our federal debt grows by $39 million or $940 million per day. Every man, woman, and child in Canada owes 22629 bucks toward that growing debt. That's eh, a little unsettling as you try and, you know, deal with some cornflakes and coffee on an early Sunday morning, Aaron. Well, yeah, it's about $10,000 a second, actually, is their calculation. It's almost a billion dollars every single day. So this is a lot of money uh, that is piling up. This is just, this is just the money that's going on the debt. Uh, it, is, it is an eye, you know, eye-popping sum. And, you know, the point of the piece that I wrote, uh, Sterling, was really to just remind people that as much as, as much as we need to do a lot of things now and, and there's no other way to get around it, 
we need to look at places we can save. I don't think it's reasonable to say every single dollar that has been spent, even before the pandemic, is something that we can continue to afford. Well, it's interesting that you would have some thoughts on this, I'm sure, because if if we're talking about spending, and and, uh, I suspect um, um, spending, which you'd use the adjective unprecedented already a couple of times, Aaron, I think we're going to see an unprecedented degree of spending, not in response to anything, but this is just a straight, let's change. Canada for good type spending. And uh, I don't see, frankly, any sort of respect for the public purse coming out of this, nor do I see a mandate for it. It's kind of dangling it all into a pre-election package that I think, uh, sadly, Canadians are going to go for. We have rather long and tragic history of voting for the party that promises us the most free stuff, Aaron. Yeah, sometimes. But I think also people are uniquely aware of of the situation because of COVID, because people have have lived through it personally. I think there may be a little more awareness of the borrowing, you know, but when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the big, big thinking, dreaming, big, you know, reimagining the economy. Yes. uh, You know, some people it's seductive to some people, certainly, because they point out that, you know what, even before COVID, there was a lot of inequality. A lot of people were struggling. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. The problem is this assumption that the government is going to make it better rather than guess what, maybe make it worse. I mean, this is a government, uh, just to give you one example, they spent a billion dollars on something called the Strategic Innovation Fund. This was well before COVID. They promised to create 56,000 jobs with that money. By their own numbers, they created 6,600. That's just one project. So if this is a government that cannot get things for a billion dollars right, I really wonder what the faith is that they're going to be able to deliver on these really big promises if they're spending 100 times that much money. And you know what the really big promises are. We're talking about pharmacare, uh, universal child care, the universal basic income. These are all major planks in the NDP platform, Aaron, that have been completely co-opted by the Trudeau Liberals. And all of those are in play right now. How many of them do you think they want to implement? I would say all of them. Yeah, I think that's what they're discussing right now. I think there's a debate going on inside that government about how big, big means. Um, you know, I worry about things like pharmacare, not because, you know, nobody likes the idea. No one's against the idea of, uh, you know, people getting the medication they need. What I'm against is the fa- fantasy that this is going to cost what they say it is. I mean, we did a report on pharmacare with some independent numbers. It's going to cost at least $10 billion more than they say it's going to. Uh, so these, you know, we, we get into this trap where politicians promise a free lunch Everyone loves a free lunch, but when the bill arrives, guess what? It's not a zero at the bottom. It's a lot more than they ever promised. And that's what I think people need to be aware of. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, exactly. But it also sounds pretty popular to a lot of people, particularly people in these uncertain times, Aaron. And there's there's a a little psychological play going on here because we don't have the kind of certainty that we're accustomed to in this country. We don't have uh, a lot of the of the predictables sort of lined up that we uh, we go through life uh, leaning on and and because of that there's a little there's a little more at play and i think they're playing with us in that regard yeah and i think that's actually distasteful i mean to take advantage of a situation to essentially exploit a crisis for your own ideological ends, I, I just think is, is distasteful. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if that's what ends up happening. But I would say this: I, I, I think there is a fair argument that the government continues to do needs to continue to do certain things that it, it normally wouldn't need to do. 
because there are still a lot of people that, that can't work and we're not in a normal situation. Sure. But I'd also remind people that even when the economy was growing, even when things were fine, this government broke all its fiscal promises, did not deliver what it said it was going to do. And so if you just want to go on their own track record, they are not well placed to argue that they know how to fix the economy when they could not even properly run the economy, so to speak, when times were good. Well, I suppose the part that's that's most annoying to a lot of people, and I'm sure it just really sticks in your craw, is with all of this oodles and oodles of money going out the front door, literally on a daily basis, the, the, the government of Canada has seen fit not to properly fund the office of the parliamentary budget officer, the person charged with surveillance of where all of this money is going, tracking it, first of all, counting it, tracking it out the door, and maybe even following following up to see exactly how effective it's being in the economy. That office is being denied its request for more funding as billions and billions of dollars go out the front door. Yeah, and that, that should be the bare minimum. Between the Parliamentary Budget Officer and the Auditor General, they should have all the money they need to track this. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of what's going out the door. And well, I don't think it. it's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to say, you know what? Taxpayers deserve to know if they're getting value for money. Yep. You know, we can disagree about a policy, but if you make a promise, this policy will deliver this, why is it unreasonable to say we need to check and see uh, whether or not it actually bears the fruit you claim it's going. On the line from Ottawa is Aaron Woodrick, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're talking about, uh, well, the, the budget, the plans the government might have. They're being a little coy with them right now, but they um, certainly appear to be all tuned up and ready to spend big. Uh, Aaron, I mentioned a moment ago an article in the Calgary Sun written by Lisa Corbella, who's a former Vancouver ad, great editorial writer. She writes about something called Generation Screw. Someone born in 1990 is going to have a lifetime tax burden of nearly half of someone born in 2000. That's a difference of only 10 years, but the difference is somewhere from the, a, a lifetime tax bill of over 700000 for the person born in, in uh, 1990 uh, versus a, a lifetime tax bill of $1.6 million for someone born in 2000. That, uh, that's a remarkable amount of difference, 200 plus percent, Aaron, for someone born 10 years after another person. How come it's so huge? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a matter of government spending a lot more money. Uh, that's it's all there is to it. It's just basic arithmetic. And the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact interest rates are low, Sterling. That's the argument to borrow more, right? If you're going to get a mortgage, it's great to lock in at a low rate. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the problem is, uh, it, the, the reason the mortgage rate, the, the reason interest rates are low is just luck. Uh, there is no policy direction behind that. They can and will go up at some point. And the problem is when we get caught at that point, uh, it is going to be extremely painful. I think it's important to remind people that it's better to play it safe than take a gamble uh, on the idea that interest rates are going to stay low, stay low forever. If, if this year has taught us nothing, Sterling, I, I would imagine it's, a, it's better to be prepared than not prepared, because if you're not, the consequences can be pretty severe. And, and the other part about this, too, is, is our ability to borrow, Aaron. I mean, Canada has a pretty good credit rating. We are known around the world to be uh, a, a people who honors our debts and obligations. But as we continue to spend at absolutely outrageous rates, our, our ability to repay our debt becomes somewhat compromised. And that's going to cost us a tick or two on our credit rating. And that actually costs us money because then it costs us more money to service our debt. And that matters. 
It absolutely does. It's the same if you've got good credit and you go to the bank for a loan, you're going to get a good rate. Uh, but if your credit rating is down, you're going to have to pay more. Um, our rating, as you say, has been good for a long time. We actually were downgraded by one agency in the middle of the pandemic, and yes. they issued another warning just last week. So these are warning signs that there are people who watch these things very closely that are saying, you know what, you better be careful because you guys are starting to get to a point where uh, it's not going to be so easy for you to borrow at the lowest rate. And as you say, that has consequences. If, again, if you, people who have a mortgage, if your interest rate goes up, you see that in your biweekly payment. Now imagine that on a scale of billions of dollars, and you're not talking hundreds or thousands more in interest, you're talking billions more. Mm -hmm. And of course, interest rates are not determined by any one specific source with absolute control. It, it's, it's a fluid kind of thing. Granted, the Fed in the United States has made statements this week indicating that they're in no hurry to raise interest rates and they won't be as paranoid about that 2% inflation mark should the United States hit it. The Fed isn't going to automatically increase rates as they have done previously. So that's a, a measure to a certain degree, Aaron, of stability of interest rates. But again, it's only temporary. And uh, I think the government of Canada would have us believe that all of this is predicated on indefinite low, low, all-time low interest rates. It is. There's a lot of just shrugging shoulders on this. And you don't have to go back too far. You know, anyone who lived through the 1980s and early 1990s will remember what interest rates were like. And it caused a serious fiscal crisis in Canada. And in fact, ironically, certainly, it was a liberal government under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin that managed to, you know, solve that problem by making some difficult choices. Right. So now here we are 25 years later and we have another liberal government, and they seem to, to be taking a very different attitude to that debt than uh, Jean Chrétien and Palmer. And yet, in your piece in the Financial Post a couple of days ago, you recommend they reconsider that and perhaps take a look at some cuts. Now, here's a government that cannot wait. I mean, absolutely, it almost hurts to watch, Aaron. They cannot wait to spend more money. And here you are having the temerity to suggest cuts. What kind of cuts? <laughs> yes, uh, people have said, well, do you, do you mean we shouldn't uh, help with pandemic response? That's not actually what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that we were spending on before the pandemic, everything from corporate welfare to equalization payments. The big ticket item in the government, of course, is employee salaries. If $51 billion a year sterling go to federal employees, um, I'm not saying that we should just make cuts willy-nilly or right. even immediately or just for fun. I'm saying that if you're in the private sector, you've lost your job, you've lost your business, you've taken hours cuts, you've taken pay cuts. Is it reasonable for you to pay your taxes to government employees who have not taken a dollar in cuts? I think it's fair for the government to look and see if there's anywhere they can save on employee salaries, whether that's fewer employees or making each of those employees take a bit of a pay cut. And uh, what is the likelihood of the government doing that kind of assessment? Well, based on, on past behavior, not very high, but I, I do think that there's a recognition. I mean, we've even seen people like the former clerk of the Privy Council, like some of the public sector unions who have acknowledged that, yes, it's going to be a little different going forward. Um, of course, I don't expect the public sector unions to uh, serve up uh, cuts voluntarily. They, right, right. They're going to fight for their members like anyone else. But I hope there's a recognition that the world's changed and the people paying the bills have lost their shirts. Um, it's maybe not a good luck for, for union leaders to be banging their drums asking for pay raises, as a few of them have got 
over the last few months at a time when everybody else is losing their shirt. Aaron, I know you, you try to stay as apolitical as possible because you focus on the numbers and the impact on taxpayers. That's your job as the director of the Taxpayers Federation. But uh, get a little political with me from the point of view of the new guy in charge of the opposition. Aaron O'Toole has been now leader of the opposition for literally a matter of a few days. Does or has anything he said or suggested in the past given you any cause at all to think that an alternative government, a conservative government led by Mr. O'Toole, might approach the next round of spending differently? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say I think uh, I do think any government, uh, whether it's this one or a government led by Mr. O'Toole, would spend money. They might spend it on different things. And I think that's an important point. I think one thing I've heard from the conservatives generally has been talking about, um, you know, supporting pro-work policy. And I think that's a good point. I think uh, there are ways to, uh, to, to spend money that encourage work rather than discourage it. And I think that needs to be looked at. The other thing that Mr. O'Toole had in his platform that I thought was very solid was uh, a, a talk to reform the tax code. You know, we have a tax code that is extremely complicated. There are all kinds of loopholes and exemptions and deductions. Regular people cannot do their taxes on their own. Right. Uh, that's an invitation to exploitation. Uh, a lot of rich people use it to uh, avoid taxes. And I think we can keep having the debate sterling about the right level of taxes, but we should try and get those taxes in the simplest way possible. And I thought that was a, a good promise. By so the, the, the idea of, of reforming and, and tightening up the tax code is of enormous appeal, especially to the Taxpayers Federation. Not too surprising there, I guess, Aaron. Yeah, no, and I think it'd be good for average taxpayers. I mean, the fact that you might be able to actually do your own taxes without the help of software or a hired professional might, might be appealing to a lot of people. And uh, as, a, as a final thought, we're almost out of time and we're grateful for yours on a Sunday morning. Going forward, and this is all going to come down in late September, in approximately a month's time, actually less than a month, 23 or 24 of September, they're going to get back together and talk about all of this. And, and of course, there will be presentations of our, our new dream for Canada, uh, and we're going to bring back big. Any thoughts on we, the people listening to the message, what sort of questions should we be asking as the rhetoric starts to flow? Well, I, I, I would be asking for benchmarks. I would be asking for specifics on what the return they expect on their spending to be. Uh, governments like to get away with promising the moon, and then no one ever checks to see if they delivered it. And I think people really need to do that. And there needs to be serious questions about how it's going to be paid for. I, I you know, in many, many, many elections, I've seen politicians promise everything. That's great, but if you can't tell me how you're, it's going to be paid for, it's not really worth the paper it's written on. All right, good stuff, and, and a fair and decent question for us all to ask as the money announcements start to roll out. Aaron, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, sir. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You can Google their website. It's pretty good stuff. Commissary Connect and its partners are developing the BC Food Hub Network, consisting of a core fund innovation center at UBC, as well as multiple regional food processing centers across the province. Commissary Connect's Laurel Street facility in South Vancouver is the first regional full-scale food innovation and processing hub for the network and therefore is serving as the pilot and demonstration site. The Grand Fromage, the big cheese at Commissary Connect is Sarb Mund and he's back with us this morning with an update. Sarb, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you again.
Good morning, Sterling. What an intro. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd fromage. So listen, tell us, tell us a little bit more about the, what, would the, what would the big difference be between the food hub that you have created uh, down in South Vancouver, Sarb, versus what's called a ghost kitchen? Sure. Okay. Well, a ghost kitchen, typically, I mean, it's, a, it's more of a back-end kitchen space. So um, it, it doesn't really have the level of processing that a food hub would. Uh, so a lot of our um, members over at the Laurel Street facility are, are products that you would see in, in your retailers or at, at like a, a Save-On Foods or, or even at, at times a Costco or a, or a Whole Foods. I mean, some of these larger retailers, uh, you wouldn't be able to create or, or manufacture those types of products at a normal ghost kitchen or at a commissary. Ah. So the next level of, yeah, so the next level of food safety is what, what's referred to as HACCP. Uh, it, it really just monitors critical control points of how uh, a product was made. It really documents each step along the way in case there ever is a recall. Uh, I mean, it has a higher level of traceability of what went into that product. And, sure. and that's essentially the difference between a processing facility like the Food Hub rather than uh, a ghost kitchen, which is essentially like a back-end Vancouver Coastal Health-approved facility, uh-huh. kind of what you would see as a restaurant. Right, so a ghost kitchen is essentially a restaurant kitchen, whereas a food hub like Commissary Connect is a, is a larger-scale, uh, right-from-the-beginning sort of facility. That is correct, yeah. So, and, and, and where the ministry is going with this is, is creating a network of these food hubs. Yeah. So uh, there are... A, I believe another three that have come online. There is one in Langley. There's one in uh, Quenelle that is, is coming up to speed pretty quickly. And there's one in Port Alberni. So the, the network, so connecting each of these hubs together is the next step for the province. And I mean, it, it couldn't have happened at a, at, a, at, a, at a more important or more critical time. Uh, just being able to leverage the successes that we have for each one of these companies and be able to scale that across the province. So everybody's learning from each other. Everybody's hopefully collating their supply chains. Everybody's understanding, you know, the best practices to make sure that these companies continue operating and continue making food, you know, through this uncertain time. Well, again, an uncertain is kind of the key word industry. We had Restaurants Canada's vice president on with us yesterday, Sarb, and he was talking about the reality of the failure rate that is predicted for restaurants right across the country. And it's not a happy conversation to have. And so those who intend to survive, damn it, one way or another, we're going we're gonna to make it. So they are making adjustments. They're pivoting on the fly. And, and I, I would think to a producer particularly, the advantages offered by a food hub like Commissary Connect, Sarb, are obvious. They don't have to buy all those expensive kitchen implements. They can rent them from you. That, that's exactly it. So we have a, a bit of a... a a, a variation in our model where we uh, only bill for equipment that you use. So we have some technology that kind of holds our model together. So if you're not using a fryer or a smoker or anything else that's in the kitchen space, you don't pay for it. So right. It kind of puts you in, in line with the, the cyclical nature uh, of, a, of a restaurant. I mean, so utility bills are tied and they're more variable costs rather than fixed costs. And that gives uh, a lot of these organizations the ability to scale up their production as, as they get busier rather than just taking a huge you know, whack of a payment you know, up front, which is, which is typically the, the, the model for a, a restaurant as opposed to a, uh, a, a person working in a ghost kitchen or, or behind the scenes. Right. Uh, so let's talk about who would be the most, like you talk about people who are making products that we would buy at the supermarket, sometimes at the big discount places like Costco and so on. Who yep. uh, Give us some examples of, of 
of people. Now, you mentioned there are now four hubs open across BC. You're the original. You're the first. And so you've probably seen the most customers and clients. Give us an example of people and organizations who have found this food hub approach really smart, cost-efficient, and effective. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's one organization that comes to mind almost instantly. They're called Goodly. Uh, it, it was, I believe it's, it's a society now, so it's a nonprofit, but essentially what they would do is they'd take tomatoes or, or surplus produce that would have typically gone to a landfill or, or gone to waste. They've brought that into the food hub. They're processing that into amazing soups. I believe there's a potato soup, there's a tomato soup. Uh, they use the labor from, um, uh, people that were from, uh, that had typical barriers or, or um, difficulties to, to getting, you know, traditional employment. Mm-hmm. So people from Have Society or Potluck Society would come help process this food and then it essentially gets sold back into the Whole Foods. It, this, this overall project was sponsored by, um, I want to say Walmart. I, think, I believe they had a, a grant for around a million dollars to get this project started. It, it's doing amazingly well. Um, they're also taking on uh, other projects from other organizations. So if an organization wants to create, a, you know, an amazing soup-based or uh, a broth, I mean, they will come over, speak to the people at Goodly, and Goodly would essentially co-manufacture for them. And that really gets more jobs um, jobs in the industry. I mean, people that typically wouldn't have had those jobs. Uh, it also diverts food waste, such as, you know, tomatoes and potatoes, which is kind of the overall mindset and the goal here, right? I mean, so BC is a, a resource-rich province. Yes. And we have amazing inputs here. They're not being processed. So how do we get these products processed in licensed facilities and hopefully scale them and, and, and export those products to con- continue having jobs here and continue having, uh, making the most use of, of all of these amazing inputs, but not having you know, that, that one entrepreneur take on the bill of putting together a HACCP facility themselves. So well, I mean, this, this model is starting to work. Yeah, really no cool. question about it. And, and it's interesting that, and I know that on the website, and you can go and you can learn more about them at commissaryconnect.com, by the way, and you'll learn very quickly that uh, one of the partners in this adventure is the BC Minister of Agriculture, along with UBC. Uh, and you also have a take a tour uh, button to click on. How's that going? Are you getting more and more interest from people who just are, are curious, who are looking around for new ways to to improve their service to their customers, keeping costs uh, on, under uh, under a threshold, and, and getting it all done. How's the touring going? Uh, the touring is going great. So, I mean, that is that is typically how we get a company into into uh, the Commissary Connect network. So, if they book a tour, I mean, we are having a conversation with that member or that entrepreneur as much as they're having a tour of our site. Sure. We're understanding whereabouts they are in terms of their mindset of when they're going to get started, how much of their uh, the business model that they understand, and it will basically handhold them, you know, to starting a company and getting them on their feet. We're, we are seeing a lot more applications now. Uh, there is a little bit of um, a, a delay in the conversions of applications to actual members, and I think everyone's still a little bit concerned about what's going on as they move forward. Um, but we are seeing an uptick in our applications for sure with uh, even some, some people that have time on their hands now that would like to start that food business that they've been thinking about. Right, start learning about new ways to save money and still uh, do what you love the most. CommissaryConnect.com. Friends, check it out. Sarb Mund, the Grand Fromage himself. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you again.
Thanks, Sterling. Have a great morning. <laughs> you too. We have a musical project to bring to your attention this morning. This is a very, very different kind of musical project, particularly for CKNW listeners, on account of the kind of music that's involved. And, of course, the theme is something we can all relate to. It all centers around something called Stories for caregivers. And in these pandemic times, if there's one thing Canadians have come to appreciate over the past several months is the value of the caregivers in our lives and the fact that all caregivers aren't necessarily doctors and nurses. There are a lot of other players on the field who are equally deserving of our recognition and appreciation. And with that in mind, let's talk to a couple of people who have decided to express their appreciation musically. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show four-time Juno nominee, Decisive, a.k.a. Derek Kristoff, who joins us from Toronto. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Do I call you D or Derek? You can call me whatever you want. That's, a, <laughs> that's up to you. Well, D, uh, it's, it's Sterling, and it's good to have you with us. I appreciate you making some time for us. Also joining us, I'm assuming from somewhere here on the West Coast, I'm not 100% sure, but last time we talked was in person in a radio studio in Vancouver. Canada's queen of punk, Biff Naked, is on my telephone this morning. Hi, Biff. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Where, are we, where do we find you this morning? Well, you know, I am in Toronto. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Yes, I'm actually a 17-minute drive from uh, Decisive Home. Okay, so now, when, when we go to a website called storiesforcaregivers.com, guys, uh, we, see, uh, we see TELUS and we see a few other corporate sponsors getting involved in, in various projects uh, supporting caregivers across Canada. And, and I'm curious about a, a couple of things, notably the third person that's in the video, and you can talk about him in a minute, but from each of you, I'm curious as to what brought you to this particular project in the first place. Biff, how about you start? Oh, well, honestly, you know, it's, uh, it's, I always say like attracts like. And uh, I was very lucky to work uh, last year with, uh, with Decisive and with Asante uh, Houghton on <clears throat> Stories for Caregivers the first season. And, and this season, it was, uh, you know, almost like COVID happened and it, it, it kind of unfolded that they would received these letters from caregivers mm-hmm. they actively uh, asked for these letters from, from people who were uh, in the community and uh, essential workers, basically, who are caregivers at home. And then to write songs based on these letters. I mean, it was just such a beautiful intention. I had to be involved. Yeah, and Derek, how about you? What, what brought you to this, uh, I assume, a similar motivation to Biff, but any personal stories? Well, to, to be honest, the whole team was brought together by uh, uh guy by the name of ken galloway who actually he uh dreamed up the idea of our web series called cypher and we have we currently have one season of it out right now online and uh it, that was the basically the same idea like creating songs inspired by caregivers stories mm-hmm. so through there we stuck together and started working on a season two and one of our artists that we had on in season one was biff and we, she was actually the first uh, episode that we shot, and we worked so amazingly with her. Like she, you know, I consider her a sister now. And uh, when COVID hit, it kind of disrupted our work on season two. So while we were kind of sitting idle, waiting for something else to do, we came up with the idea of, 
you know, letters for caregivers to, you know, help shine a light on the caregivers that are currently also frontline workers and caregivers at home. So, uh, And who was, so, know, who was soliciting the letters? How did caregivers know to get the letters to you so that you could in turn turn them into songs? So we, we basically casted a wide net uh, online uh, through social media and also through our own, you know, networks. And we were fortunate enough to land on a number of amazing stories. And then we narrowed them down to the four you know, most intense, most best stories. And because this is once a week, it's a four part miniseries right. and there's one each week. So we just reached out and our friends asked their friends and we were lucky enough to find four amazing stories. And, you know, that's how it happened. Well, the first episode has been available now for about a week. It's it's uh, Emily's story. The next episode becomes available tomorrow, and that's John's story. And I've had a look at that. There are still two more episodes. I'm assuming they're both done and just awaiting release on a pre-scheduled uh, uh, platform, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about taking, uh, um, in this case, Emily, tell us a little bit about Emily, Biff. Give us some background on her personally and how you managed to take her letter and make it into the song that we're going to hear in a second or two. Well, honestly, um, Emily's story is uh, is pretty amazing um, because she is working at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that wasn't, obviously, that wasn't um, what she was trained to do. And through circumstances and through COVID and uh other things that are at play. She is caregiving for both of her parents um, who are, uh, you know, have uh, a variety of different um, different circumstances. I'll let Derek kind of tell you more about Emily, but her, it, it was, it was just heart wrenching in a way. And, um, you know, it, it's important for us to celebrate someone like Emily and, and see the human kind of behind the name tag. Um, you know, a lot of essential workers that we see every single day are mm-hmm. caregivers at home, and we don't know everybody's story. And uh, and maybe if we understood, uh, it would lead to more compassion and uh, and empathy on our parts. And I know that uh, uh, the lyrics I have to credit um, uh, Derek for because uh, it, it's amazing. He tells he tells her story perfectly. You know, it's a narration of uh, this this woman's. Uh, incredible struggle, which is her her life and her job. Derek, I'll let you kind of so Derek, you you, you you took this letter from from Emily, the grocery store clerk, with the with a personal story, which you can share with us, and then you had to translate that into lyrics for for the song that you and Biff have recorded together. So I'm curious, first of all, about Emily's story, and then and and then the transition, the translation, if you will, for, of that moving story into a, a pretty solid lyric. I must tell you. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, her story—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's definitely moving. Uh, she studied for years to become an archaeologist, and um, she also faced a bit of a backlash from her family. You know, basically telling her that it—it's not really something she—you sh- know—it's it, not an ideal right. career. There's no future and, in archaeology, right? Right. Yeah, you know, that's what she was told. And then, but then she winds up getting a job in in the field, and. Everything is, you know, going perfect for her in that sense. And then COVID hits. And one of the main problems was in order for her to get out to the site, which is a pretty far distance from where she lives, she had to carpool. 
So once COVID hit, they shut down the site. So there she couldn't work. So mm-hmm. she had to get a job at a grocery store to help support her parents. And uh, then the job, the site opens up, but they completely eliminated the carpooling. And she couldn't afford uh, an automobile to get to work. Uh-huh. So that completely screws the job up. So she has to stay at Loblaws. And another part of the story I'd like to mention, which, you know, she's amazing, but this to me puts her on an entirely different level. Her brother is currently studying uh, in university, and she basically takes on his chores and work around the house in order for him to focus on his studies as well. Like, you know, she's just like, you're going to be the next member of our family to graduate as well. Just I'll take care of all the house stuff. You just focus on your studies. And to me, like, she's a phenomenal person, and it's a story that needed to be told. Interesting stuff. Uh, So, guys, what I'm going to do is play a portion of the song, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk about lots more, including the next one, John's song, which I've seen already and quite enjoyed. But here, uh, Julie, let's roll a little bit of of, uh, Emily's song from Biff Naked and Decisive. I put my pen to the paper on a mission I wrote this for anyone who'll listen I work at a supermarket for very low pay Stocking food for your bowls and your plates Sanitizer on my skin, gloves on my hands A mask on my face to keep the COVID away Two dollars short of my hourly wage To compensate me for the dangers we face From condiments to the fruit to the meat I'm working to make sure your family has food to eat So it's only right you respect what we do Abide by the rules defined on the news Yet for every ten customers the ninth is a fool Laughing at the virus like their life is immune When I tell them they're unsafe They want to disprove by not wearing a mask Have you nothing to lose? Then they refuse to leave the store Either screaming or ignore me I've even been the target of a dill pickle jar That's smashed on the floor Throwing insults galore Like at a real job For real? If you only knew about my nights in the rows Overnight shift Clean up in aisle six If you only knew about the pain that I see Then maybe you would care about me Dig a little deeper You'll find the truth You don't know my struggle and my pain In this fight I'm on the same side as you as Biff Naked and Decisive and part as part of Emily's song. It's really quite a moving piece. This is my story. This is my song. This is my letter. My name is John. A security guard at a hospital is how I pay the bills. And I get if fate introduces us, you're likely not going to be very thrilled. A patient losing patience in the waiting rooms, a sight that I often see. But despite your pain and circumstance, I still need the guard security. And it may feel cold in the room. You may feel like it's a losing race. But I still remind you to socially distance and keep a mask on your face. I try to keep the peace, but sometimes things get out of hand. That is decisive, and also joining him in a few moments on the song is Biff Naked, and that is John's song. That is episode two of four of songs or stories for caregivers. The, the website, by the way, friends, is storiesforcaregivers.com, and all these videos, the ones that are so far available, are up and running, and they are performed by four-time Juno nominee Decisive and Biff Naked, both of whom are joining us on the line from Toronto this morning, and, and to the both of you, who is the third person in the video there is uh, uh there is a host who comes in at the beginning and uh, at the end of each of the stories and he is he the producer no that's a uh, sante hotton he's actually the host of our web series cypher that oh. i mentioned earlier on okay and, and he's also an amazing peer support worker he works for an, an amazing organization called stella's house 
and he's just, you know, fantastic across the board. And we just thought it, you know, wouldn't make sense to not have him involved in this project. So we brought him on board, and yeah, that's that's Asante. Okay, so now we now we're talking about stories from people who are working through the pandemic. Uh, in a couple of cases, the, the examples that we've heard so far, individuals who are not doing the jobs that they of their lifetime or of their dreams, but who are nonetheless uh, paying the bills and keeping their nose above water uh, and helping others through the pandemic. What sort of response are you getting to these uh, these letters and the presentation of their stories? Uh, the response so far has been extremely overwhelming. Like I'm getting a lot of messages online, just kind of thanking us for doing it. And in a weird way, I kind of feel guilty receiving, you know, responses like that. Cause you know, I feel like we should be thanking them. You know, all we are is just, you know, writing songs based on their, you know, incredible stories. So, and, but it did, the response has been amazing. And Biff, I would imagine you would echo that. And you're a very humble woman. I've known you long enough to know that you're not big on taking a lot of credit for stuff. And you really are just, you, the, you're the messenger here, aren't you? Because you're the intermediary between the person's story and us hearing their story. So it's, it's, it's almost a secondary role that you're playing here, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I, I love collaborating uh, with Derek. We have a real uh, songwriting chemistry that's uh, kind of hard to find sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of those things are uh, incredible gifts. And, of course, Asante, like he was describing, is also, uh, he's an innovator in, uh, in social justice and uh, in mental health advocate. He's a natural storyteller and rapper, just like decisive. And, and to work with them and uh, and this team has just been amazing. And these letters are, you know, they're love letters, ultimately. And yes. we're describing, like, inequality, uh, you know, poverty, um, other deep-rooted issues that are happening for people anyway. And COVID-19 and and this year of 2020 and the, and the pandemic has just really exacerbated uh, a lot of things and a lot of equality that already existed. And now, of course, as you know, it's everybody is under a lot of pressure. And I think that uh, essential workers, um, you know, and frontline workers are are really doing it all. And for us to be able to um, kind of put the spotlight on them and kind of, you know, sing, sing their praises because they really are the unsung heroes. Yeah. Um, you know, um, uh, it's just been a real gift to work with everyone. So decisive when you were talking about Emily's song and you translated her her letter into the lyrics of of the of the first video, uh, were you a little ticked when you heard about the uh, uh, Loblaws and other frontline grocery store employees having their pandemic two dollar an hour bonus rescinded for what appears to be no particular reason at all? Of course, like, you'd be ridiculous to not be offended by that. Like these people are out there during, you know, such a crucial time. And especially, you know, we're dealing with a virus that we still essentially not really know anything about, you Mm -hmm. know, it's something that we're learning about every day. So to be able to, to, to just prop them up like they did giving them the raise, which I'm sure was extremely helpful. And just to have it stripped away, like it's, it's kind of disgusting. Well, it's not, it's not, these are my, my words, you know, not not Emily's. I don't want to. 
Yeah, sorry. No, that's quite all right. It's not as though the profit margin all of a sudden was erased either. That uh, That's also worth noting. So is there a financial component to both of you in all of this project? I know that it's a labor of love for both of you. It's clear. It's obvious in the finished product. But is there a financial element? Are you trying to raise money? And if so, for whom? Well, it's basically raising awareness. I mean, um, you know, stories for caregivers um, has been an amazing, uh, an amazing organization to get involved with, um, you know, speaking personally, uh, because basically um, caregivers are able to connect with each other and share experiences um, more than anything else. And again, it's, uh, it's for us, you know, to help, um, I guess, explore and share human stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as performers and as as storytellers and as, as lyric writers, I mean, that's basically, you know, that's basically what we always do. Right. Uh, and what we've always done as performers and, and storytellers. I mean, we want to share, uh, share our hearts, of course, but to tell someone else's story is a big responsibility. And, uh, and we're able to, you know, try and honor their story uh, through stories for caregivers. And, and plus, for both you of know. you, it's got to be just a whole lot of fun because you don't play much anymore. You know, can't perform much anymore. It must have been just a lot of fun to go play, put together a video and have some fun. Most definitely. To be honest, like, uh, this to me, it's 50% work. 50% I get to hang out with Biff and, uh, <laughs> and her husband, Snake who I am a huge admirer of. So I get to have them at my house once a week. So I love it. I wish I wish it was more than four episodes. Well, let me recommend storiesforcaregivers.com to all of our listeners here on the West Coast this morning to thank you, Decisive, and uh, you too, Biff, for joining us and congratulate to both of you on a fine, fine job. We appreciate your time and the good work you're doing. Keep it up. Thanks. Thanks, too. Let's play a little bit more of that uh, John song, Julie, on the way out here. This is about who lives in my house, always around me. This mask on my face, I don't wear to be a sheep. I wear it for my elder parents, both unwell and weak. After COVID, I moved back into their home to help them with their day-to-day. Before Corona... Joined on the line from Calgary by former British Columbia MP. He represented the constituency of Prince George Peace River from 1993 all the way through 2010. He is now retired from, well, federal politics, but is uh, particularly active in a movement called Wexit. A pleasure to welcome Jay Hill to the program this morning. Mr. Hill, Jay, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. And according to the website, WexitCanada.com, your mission statement is to achieve independence and a brighter future for Western Canadians through constitutional reformation or the creation of an independent nation. Are you okay with either one of those outcomes, Jay? Or is it really about independence? No, I think that the majority of our members, Sterling, would be okay with either. In fact, the vast majority, I think, of Westerners would be supportive of the former. They would like to see constitutional reform, uh, some substantive change to the way our democracy works uh, in Canada, and they would like to remain Canadian. 
And you have volunteers on the board of directors from Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba. So all four Western provinces are represented. Do you, uh, sitting in Calgary this morning, ex- do you acknowledge that there is stronger support for the notion of Western independence uh, in some provinces than there is in others here in the West? Oh, definitely. I think that some of the greatest grievances uh, directed towards our federal government and and central and eastern Canada certainly is from Alberta, and it has to do with uh, their primary industry here, the oil and gas industry. Right. But that's not saying that there aren't a, a substantial number of Westerners in the other provinces that also feel that they're treated and or their provinces are treated unfairly by the east mm-hmm. uh as as uh, now it's still though I, I the question i suppose that i'm i'm aiming at here in a circuitous fashion mr hill is uh, you, although you you represent the western provinces and western sentiment uh, and, and you've already said alberta is the the dominant uh province in terms of grievances is it possible that this movement could end up being an alberta separation thing rather than a western canadian separation movement Well, first of all, I need to correct you a little bit, Sterling, that uh, as of January 10th of this year, uh, there has been a federal party created, and that's the party that I'm the interim leader of. I I took over just two months ago, the end of June, uh, from the founder and the original leader of Wexit Canada. So it is a federal party. Uh, There is also, as you're suggesting, independence parties and it's multiple uh in some of the provinces uh, but there's independence parties in the three western provinces british columbia alberta and saskatchewan and i'm not 100 percent sure about manitoba right part of the reason why i'm not sure because i'm not following it really closely i've got my hands full more than enough uh, with trying to organize the federal party uh, but there are provincial parties that are also espousing uh, independence in uh, in British Columbia, for example. Okay, now let's talk about uh, organizing a party and uh, how full your hands are. You must feel like Aaron O'Toole this week because all of a sudden here's a guy who's been handed the the keys to Stornoway and and a nice job as leader of the opposition, except he doesn't get a chance to even move into the House and he's already working on what is likely or what could very possibly become a fall election. Now, if you're a federal party just formed, as you just said, Jay, where are where are you in terms of readiness for a fall election should Mr. Trudeau decide to go that route? Well, I would have to describe our election readiness, uh, Sterling, quite honestly, as below ground zero. Uh, you know, I reflect back on my history with the Reform Party of Canada when uh-huh. we started it back in the mid-1980s. And uh, uh, organizing any political party at any level is just a a horrendous undertaking with the amount of detail that you have to look after. And the federal level, of course, even expands upon that of of which a provincial party, the challenges a provincial party would have. So, I mean, it it really comes down to trying to uh, initiate uh, what's known as EDAs, electoral district associations, um, structured in each of the constituencies, each of the ridings, uh, you have to have a board of directors. You have to have innumerable uh, volunteers that are willing to step forward and contribute some of their time. Yep. Uh, 
you have to expand your membership base, you have to fundraise, and those are just sort of the mechanics of setting up a political party. And those are the same challenges that the provincial parties are uh, facing as well. So the idea would be that I would assume that based on this uh, very, and you've only been uh, on the job for a couple of months, so the idea would be to field candidates in at least a few ridings to then make sure that you qualify for all of the uh, uh, obligations that need to be met to continue being registered as a federal party. That's quite correct, Sterling. Uh, For example, one of the major hurdles to be on a level playing field or anywhere near a level playing field with the established federal political parties like the Conservative Party of Canada, the NDP, Mm. and the Liberal Party of Canada, is to be able to offer our supporters, our donors, a tax uh, receipt uh, for their donations, which reduces the overall cost to the individual donor. We're not able to do that until we actually contest at least one riding in uh, an election, either in a by-election or a general election. So obviously we're going to run candidates no matter how ill-prepared we are should uh, Prime Minister Trudeau decide that it's to his advantage to call an election this fall. Okay, now I need to take a break, but just before we do that, on the on this whole notion of a fall election, what do you think? Uh, it's per- He's looking for permission to Essentially, uh, I've described it earlier to a previous guest as uh, the, the uh, director of the tax, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. In fact, uh, he's asking for permission per, for permission for basically an orgy of vote buying. That's how I describe it, uh, and he seems quite determined. What do you make of all of this, Jay? Well, I think it's two things. One is that I mean, he will argue, uh, and probably fairly successfully in central and eastern Canada, where he has the majority of his support. He will argue quite successfully, I suspect, down there, the need for an election to give him a new mandate to plan and organize and uh, um, uh, restore some sense of uh, fiscal uh, responsibility following this COVID uh, pandemic. That'll be his argument, I suspect. But I think that in reality, it is what you say is it's twofold. One is that he wants to have hopefully a majority government going forward. He would hope to win a majority this fall. That would allow him to basically become a dictator again and and run the country as he sees fit. Secondly, I think it's very clear when he prorogued parliament to shut down all the standing committees Uh because he's a minority. He's in a minority. He doesn't have control of those committees. And they were just beginning the task of investigating and digging deep into this controversy where they were the Liberal government and Trudeau were going to funnel almost a billion dollars to the WE Foundation, which has employed his family, mm-hmm. his wife, his mother, and his brother. Uh, it's just astounding that he is, uh, at this point, getting away with that. Now, if Parliament continues in the fall as a minority uh, with the opposition holding majority control of the committees, obviously all of those committees are going to restart their investigations into this scandal. So I think that's the primary reason why Mr. Trudeau wants to avoid that by calling an election. 
The uh, interim leader of Wexit Canada, Jay Hill, is on the line from Calgary. Mr. Hill, you're a B.C. guy originally from Fort St. John. You represented the riding of Prince George Peace River for many, many years. I'm interested in support for Western independence here in your home province of British Columbia, particularly the urban-rural divide, Jay. I would expect its uh, support in Metro Vancouver, Victoria, for the movement is minimal. I'm curious most about support in rural BC, where I suspect it's much stronger. What can you tell us? Well, I would agree with you. Uh, I think based upon our membership, um, and obviously it's been growing over the summer, um, obviously, and obviously it's growing at a much slower rate than we would like, um, but it uh, it is predominantly in the rural areas outside of the lower mainland of, of uh, British Columbia, and certainly not as as uh, predominant on the uh, on Vancouver Island as you suggest. How about urban Calgary and urban Edmonton? I'm suspecting there's a little difference, uh, particularly in Calgary, in terms of sentiment than say Vancouver for uh, this whole movement in West. The notion even of Western independence. Oh, definitely. As I said uh, at the outset of our conversation, Sterling, is that. Uh, uh, here in Alberta, obviously the view is the strongest part because of the the economic hits, uh, the layoffs uh, that our oil and gas industry has faced over the last couple of years, both from a low oil price and from a full frontal attack from our federal government in many of the laws that they've passed. Um, and, uh, you know, other than stepping in belatedly and purchasing with tax dollars, I might add unnecessarily, in my view, purchasing with tax dollars the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project. That's really the only thing that Mr. Trudeau can point to where he has tried uh, to assist the oil and gas industry in any capacity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Jay, I'm also curious about the cynical people in our midst who take a look at the Western independence movement and say, well, good for you guys. Uh, you know, you've, you've, you're Canadians. We've watched the separation model for decades in Quebec. The old squeaky wheel gets the grease treatment, and Quebec has been squeaking and whining and complaining for decades and my gosh they just we just we can't write them checks fast enough and give them what they want fast enough yes they keep threatening to separate but that's only because that keeps keeps the wheels squeaking even louder so if they're not really serious and they're getting all the goodies how serious can you be emulating the quebec model well i guess you know there's two objectives here one is to elect uh, wexit Canada members of parliament and only run candidates, uh, unlike the Reform Party, only run candidates in Western Canada. Wexit Canada, by our our guiding principles, those members of parliament, if we were successful in electing people to the Parliament of Canada, will only vote for legislation that is viewed and assessed as being good for their constituents and good for the West. Mm -hmm. Um, unlike the federal parties that run candidates all across the land and invariably, regardless of party stripe or leader, end up attempting to appease Toronto and Montreal and parts of Quebec um, to try and get those votes because that's where the most members of parliament are. So we would be very distinguishable in that sense. 
Now, if that in the short term resulted in a, an awakening in central Canada of the long-term historical grievances of Western Canada uh-huh. and the fact that our constitution does not work for us, and a big reason for that, and it's been identified for decades in the West, is we don't have a triple E Senate. In other words, equal, elected, and effective. In fact, our Senate is archaic, and it lacks any leg- legitimacy whatsoever. And that's why we see laws passed that cater to central Canada, where the, the majority of the members of parliament come from, mm-hmm. and there's not, no body to protect the interests of the less populated regions of the West and the North, uh, similar to what they have in the United States, or they have in Australia. Uh, we do not have that body in Canada. So when we talk about constitutional reformation, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we're talking about is remodeling the Senate to do what it was originally set out to do, which is to protect the lesser populated regions of the country. So it can go either way. I mean, if there was an awakening of these facts and a a recognition that uh, our constitution is outdated and needs to be uh, overhauled, uh, to a modern era to meet the needs of, of all the citizens, not just those in central Canada, then I think most Westerners would say, okay, well, if they're sincere about that, let's work with them to see that happens. And there are people that are moving in that direction. Uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta, for example, with his Fair Deal panel and its report. Um, Saskatchewan Scott Moe is, is likewise working on those types of arrangements. Mm-hmm. I don't hold out a lot of hope that that's going to happen. And that's why in our mission statement, we have sort of the two-stage, two-track approach. And the other approach, regrettably, is to form our own nation in Western Canada. Right. Again, back to the original statement at the beginning of the conversation. Western Wexit Canada mission statement. This is from the website, friends, wexitcanada.com. To achieve independence and a brighter future for Western Canadians through constitutional reformation or the creation of an independent nation. Jay Hill, you pretty much put your cards on the table, sir. Uh, It's going to be a busy uh, next few weeks if indeed the government of Canada decides to go forward with an election. Uh, Let us know. Uh, We'll keep checking back with you as all of this unfolds. And if you decide to field a candidate or two, we'll have a chat about it on the radio. Good with you? Okay, well, thanks very much, Sterling. Appreciate it being on the program. It's good to have you with us. Jay Hill, WexitCanada.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.